Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. Though this week we are answering your questions. Congress is on spring break, so we're taping early this week at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, April 16th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Jen Habercorn of the Los Angeles Times. Hello. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Good morning. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. It's great to be back. Welcome, ladies. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So this week, we are answering your questions, at least some of them. Thank you to everyone who submitted. I promise we will do this again, probably the next time Congress takes a recess. So our first two questions have to do with what might happen if the Supreme Court finds for the Republicans who are suing to end the Affordable Care Act. Before we get to the specifics, let's remind everyone what this case is about and where it is in the judicial process. Jen, you were there with me when this case was announced back in 2018. It feels like a very long time ago. It does. Tell us what it's about and where it is. So this is, again, a group of Republican attorneys general and governors who um, oppose Obamacare. And they um, went to court and said, if you remember in the tax bill that Congress passed recently, they eliminated the individual mandate. Um, That was kind of one of the big pillars of the health care law. The penalty for the individual mandate. Thank you. It's, It's zero now. And so they argued if the penalty for the mandate is gone, the entire rest of the law needs to fall with it. Uh, kind of a dubious legal claim, according to a lot of the scholars who've studied this. But they won in the district court. The judge said, not only does this need to go away, the entire law needs to go away. And so now that this case is going to move forward, the Fifth Circuit's going to hear oral arguments in July. And once again, for what seems like the upteenth time, the ACA hangs in the balance and could be headed to the Supreme Court. Only this time it's the week of her wedding. No. <laughs> It's okay. There'll be plenty more after those oral arguments. This case is not going away anytime soon. Um, So Lisa Nelson from San Francisco wants to know, quote, what would happen to the Medicare Part D donut hole if the entire ACA is struck down? And would newer bills such as the Bipartisan Budget Act, which helped close the coverage gap for brand name drugs one year early, prevent this feature of the ACA from being eliminated? Joanne, you were you've been I asking guessed around. Wrong. <laughs> I guessed wrong, but you have the answer. No, um Well, I think the real answer is we don't we totally don't know. know. I mean, my guess was that the 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 payment the the balanced budget act made the pharmaceutical companies pay a bigger share. Um and they don't like it and they're trying to get that reversed, but that's a separate conversation. And that was just last year. Right. They're not getting totally reversed, they're trying to reduce the payment. Um so my my initial instinct was that since that came later, if the underlying law was repealed, thrown out of court, that that would be irrelevant. But we're really not entirely sure, and that's going to be a theme of the morning. Yeah, well, that was why I wanted to, to sort of point out this question. There are so many questions. You know, Congress legislates, and they've legislated since a lot since the Affordable Care Act 
But linking back to the Affordable Care Act, so the big question becomes what happens to these later laws if the earlier law is struck down? And I think we're in, from what I can tell, in completely uncharted territory. So like if I do something and later on Jen builds on that and then I'm repealed or declared <laughs> unconstitutional, is Jen irrelevant? That might help. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure on this one. No, and, and I, both, both you and I asked people about this, and I don't think anybody's really 100% sure. So along the same lines, uh, Carol Moulton of Arden, North Carolina, wants to know if HIPAA, the 1996 Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, will also remain in the event the ACA is completely overturned. Someone needs to remind us how HIPAA is about a lot more than just confidentiality of medical records, which is what most people think it is. Joanne, you you were with me when this passed. No, actually, that was the year I was transferred to the oh. science beat for one year. So I watched from afar. It it, it, it it's a it's a broader bill than it's, than privacy. I mean, it, it, that's basically what it is. But you actually have the answer to this one, not me. So you can't fool me. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, I, and I found this out sort of by accident uh, last year. HIPAA, for for those who don't know, what it was really intended it's also to portability. Do. It's right. Pre, it was the pre, it was a pre existing. It was it was the the mother of the pre existing conditions bills. It yes it banned pre-existing condition um, uh, discrimination discrimination for people in employer-provided insurance. It actually attempted to make a pathway for people buying individual insurance, but that didn't work very well, which is kind of what led to the Affordable Care Act. Um, but, but since 1996, employer insurance hasn't been able to, to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. And I just assumed, well, if the ACA was struck down, that that would still remain and most people get their insurance through employers and that everything would be okay. Sorry, people who buy your own insurance. But it turns out, or so I'm told, that the Affordable Care Act rewrote into it the HIPAA protections so that if the ACA went down, so would the rewritten HIPAA protections. And again, once again, it is unclear what that would mean in terms of the healthcare system. I think that I think the the, the message from this is we have no real idea what right. would happen in the healthcare system. Everybody keeps saying if the ACA got overturned, it would just be the things that are in the ACA, that people would lose their Medicaid expansion and the exchanges would go away. But the ACA is so embedded into the rest of the healthcare system now, it could be really big. Right. And I, I think our attitudes about pre-existing conditions have changed. So even if HIPAA was struck indirectly by this court, um, I don't think every employer in America would throw every sick person off the employer health plan. But you could see a lot more waiting periods. You know, you couldn't get it for a period of time. You'd have some restrictions. I mean, we could – people forget what it was like before 1996. We'd really take that for granted that if you get insurance through a job or a partner's job that you're protected. And we weren't so well protected before 1996. Yeah. Well, um, you know, whenever we ask lawmakers on the Hill about this, particularly Republicans, you know, what would happen if the whole law is struck down, they seem to kind of say, oh, it's so far off and even dismiss the possibility that this might happen. And they also say, well, if it does happen, I'm sure that uh, the judges will, you know, create a waiting period. Essentially, they'll stay the destruction of the law to give us time to come up with an alternative. A century? Here we are. (laughs) Right. And here we are again. There is no agreement on an alternative. So, um, you know, there are are a lot of presuppositions that politicians are putting into this thinking that, oh, well, everything will be fine. They'll give us time. And just they're kind of, you know, turning away from it. But the time is I mean, time is really an irrelevant concept here because the Republicans have been talking about a replacement since before Obamacare passed. You know, we're we're a decade out and they have not. Remember, they couldn't agree among themselves. Forget getting Democratic support and the Democrats now control the House. This whole conception of like, oh, we'll just fix it. You know, yesterday, you know, we were 
trying to remember what it was that we used to call Trump's plan, terrific hair. But we never found out what terrific hair would consist of. I think they're still working on it. Right. And just to step back for a minute, we don't know that the Supreme Court is going to take this case. We don't know that the Supreme Court is going to rule against the law. We don't know that the Supreme Court would strike the entire law. Just to put in perspective, I mean, the the Supreme Court had their chance to strike the law two major (laughs) times, and they chose not to. So the thought that the justices are now you know, when the law will be in place for 10 years is going to say, let's just, oh, like, let's just get rid of this thing and start over. Seems like a big um, step right now. That being said, the court has changed. There's new members on the court. So we don't know entirely what they're going to do. But the thought that they're going to 10 years after a law is in place, just wipe it off the books seems really insurmountable. And remember that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who is not a fan of the Affordable Care Act, he has upheld it twice. And that first time in 2012, it was before people were covered. It was before Mm -hmm. the law was implemented. He did have a chance to strike the mandate or strike um, big chunks of the law or strike all of the law in 2012. He chose not to. So the idea of him throwing out the entire thing, if he didn't throw it out before people were covered and before it had really sort of permeated our health care system, it's hard for us to envision. Or right after. Or right after. <laughs> um, the, you know, it's really hard. I agree with Jen. You know, they're really hard to envision them throwing the whole thing out. They could they could go after portions of it, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't, we, you never know what the Supreme Court is going to do. That's why we always sort of block out these chunks of time for June to sit around and wait for the Supreme Court. Also, and just, oh, oh, just to get at the timing real fast. Um, 2020. <laughs> 20, I think June 2020, it very likely could. I mean, the case would have to move very fast. The Fifth Circuit would have to take it up quickly, rule quickly. Um, the appeal would have to get to the court very quickly. It would kind of have to get to the court by December of 2019 for the justices to take it and rule by June 2020. But what's happening in November 2020? Another election. So just... The idea that we're going to go into another presidential election and health care is going to be a main talking point is just Although I will say I did incredible. go back and look this up. Um, they filed the original cases against the Affordable Care Act the day it was signed. Mm-hmm. And so that was March of, of 2010. And it did – it was – the Supreme Court decision was in 2012. So the timing would be – uh, the it, same. it could work. So yeah. it, it could happen. But So like one week before the conventions or three weeks before that. I don't know the right. convention days, but right around then. Yeah. Fun, yeah don't, fun. Make, don't make right. plans for 2020. <laughs> All right. So here's a question about surprise medical bills, which we've talked about a lot lately. It's from Michelle Mills from Evanston, Illinois. She notes that they are not a problem in Medicare and Medicaid and asks, quote, so what happens when an anesthesiologist or contract emergency doctor who doesn't take Medicare or Medicaid treats an enrolled patient? Do they take a lower rate? Does the hospital hospital make up the difference? Why can't this solution be applied for all out-of-network arrangements? So first, who wants to talk about balance billing limits in Medicare and Medicaid? Joanne, you've been looking into this. Yeah, I, I actually um, been emailing some medical persons because what I was curious about was Medicare Advantage. In Medicare, if you're a doctor who participates in Medicare, and most do, you have to accept the Medicare rates. You cannot then say, well, I'm going to throw on another couple of thousand dollars or 10000 or or even 400 or whatever. You take what the, the, the rates are. You take what it is. Medicare patients in traditional Medicare do not get surprise bills. What I was but they wondering can, they about- They can be balanced bills. Right, right. But right. only there's a, there are Within the limit. rules. Right. Within there's, the rules. And, and um, you, have a, you have a fee. You have, you, have a, you have a share that a patient can pay. But you don't have this. You're not going to get $100,000 surprise anesthesiology bill. Um, the question I had was what happens with Medicare Advantage? And there are similar, not exactly identical, but we won't we won't get into a really technical discussion. In Medicare Advantage, there are st- which are the private pan- plans within Medicare that become more and more popular. There are still protections. They're not 
quite as consistent and across the board. But you again, you're not going to you're not vulnerable to what a commercial payer what what any of us could get, no matter how hard we've we've tried for this many times. You know, <laughs> you can't avoid them, no matter how hard you try. In Medicare, you have protections. And in terms of why they don't. I mean, that's what Congress is grappling with, and that's what the state legislatures are grappling with. They'd have to take less money. If they wanted to take less money, they'd be in network. So who's going to pay, and how is that mechanism going to be developed? Yeah, we should add, in Medicaid, there's no balance billing right. because presumably Medicaid recipients don't have any money. That's why they're on Medicaid. They have very little money. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of the core of this, and that's that's why the surprise billing thing is turning out to be difficult because they would basically have to say to the doctors and hospitals, you're going to have to take less. and Nobody Jen, seems to want to do hell. that. What's the latest? I mean, surprise billing has surprisingly <laughs> picked up a lot of political momentum because it's affecting a lot of people of different backgrounds. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a bad situation. People end up with thousands of dollars of medical bills. So I do think it's something that Congress could end up taking up. I mean, this Congress is going to do very little, but surprise billing seems like something that has bipartisan support. You know, there's a couple policy ideas out there. I don't know that there's kind of momentum around what exactly to do, but there's enough ideas out there that I could see this being something that this Congress actually gets done. But they still haven't figured out who's going to pay. No. Who's going to eat the cost? And I, I think the uh, last... A couple of weeks ago, Senate leaders were saying they wanted to do it around this summer, um, and they're hoping to maybe couple it with some of the drug pricing legislation that they've been talking about. So it could move fairly quickly. President Trump has even talked about it. So getting you know getting him to kind of voice that from the White House also helps to kind of move things along and gain momentum. I mean, we should point out that this is the surprise bills hit people who, who, are, who are insured, who are paying their premiums, who are trying to stay in network, and they end up with a provider, whether it's an emergency room physician or an anesthesiologist or whatever their numbers and areas, um, and they get this surprise bill. And there's just this sort of feeling that that's not fair. It doesn't address this legislation is only addressing these out-of-pocket emergency costs for people who are insured. It's still not dealing with affordability of insurance or the people who aren't insured who pay even more than the people who or are the, insured the or all the other long list. The people right. $6,000 deductibles of which there's an right. increasing number. And, and I think and, that right. might be the political liability of this is that Democrats might look at this as too small a ball. You know, there's all these problems in the healthcare system that they want to deal with. You know, Medicare for all, fixing the ACA whole scale, things like that. This might be viewed as something too minor. Yeah, but um, I don't think they're going to walk. I mean, how do you how do you have a solution and say, sorry, I'm not going to fix it because I want more? I mean, I would. I think if the Republicans and Democrats, can, I, I think there's a lot of pressure for them. There I don't is. think they're going to do a lot this year. I agree with you, but I, I think that there's some momentum on this one mm-hmm. if they can figure it out. All right. Well, we had a lot of what I would call big picture questions about how the healthcare system works, or in most cases, doesn't. Here is one from Seth Tenpenny. He asked, "Quote: I've read statistics that approximately five to ten percent of the population accounts for about fifty percent of total healthcare spending. Can you talk about who this population is comprised of? What conditions they have? Are they any? Are there any realistic or reasonable proposals to address the health of this population and perhaps reduce spending on those folks while improving outcomes?" They're sick people. Yes, they're. That, <laughs> or people having babies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much. I mean, but it is true that that 5% of the people, I just looked at the numbers again, 5% of the, the population consumes 50% of the health care. I remember back in the 1990s when they were first talking about managed care, um, uh, Len Schaefer, who worked for the, the Carter administration, then later ran uh, California Blue Cross Blue Shield, which later became WellPoint, was doing a slide deck once. And he pointed to that statistic, which was the same in the 1990s. And he said, you know, what you really need to do is manage the heck out of those 
percent of sick people and leave everybody else alone, which, of course, is not how managed care worked in the 1990s, which is why people didn't like it. Um, but, I mean, what do we know about how to bring down costs for the high users in the healthcare system? You know, that, that question made me think of this example a couple of years ago of the patient in Iowa who had a very expensive medical condition and was skewing the entire the rates for everybody in Iowa who I think it was a well point plan. It it really illuminated how this plays out because this patient was costing, you know, millions of dollars a year, I think it was. And um, everybody's rates were going up because of it. So all the insurance companies in, in Iowa were trying to get rid of this patient, which is you know, on its face, unfair. That's not what the healthcare system is supposed to be. Um, I don't think any average person would say that that's an equitable, like this one person shouldn't get health insurance. Um, so I remember at that time, there were people were talking about how you solve this problem and talking about deeply subsidizing that one person's care. Well, isn't that what reinsurance is supposed to be for? <laughs> sounds like a good idea. Maybe it'll go in the ACA. <laughs> For those who don't remember, there was re- – well, actually, I think the reinsurance expired. It was the risk yeah. orders that got repealed. But but all, there were ways built into the ACA to try to deal with the problem of what happens when you have a handful or, in this case, one incredibly expensive patient. Um, and, and there are, I mean, efforts to, to you know, manage care better, particularly for – I mean, to make it better for the patient and better for the healthcare system and, and less expensive, right? Yeah. Well, with that patient, he had a blood clotting disorder. And my understanding was based on, you know, talking to different experts about it was that, yes, he had a really expensive medical condition that will last his whole life. But he also probably had a really bad year that year um, and, you know, probably spent a lot of time in the hospital and things like that. Um, but there are essentially like there are people who have really serious medical medical conditions that will last their entire lives and they'll need a lot of care. There are other people that have, you know, really bad years. And, that and you know, that's what I think kind of resonates more broadly when you say, well, you could be in, you know, a horrible accident or this could suddenly happen to you or you could become disabled and need a lot of care over, you know, a shorter period of your life. So even though we tend to look at, you know, average medical costs for per person across the U.S., um, a smaller portion of people are going to have higher costs and some people are going to have it, you know, for a shorter period of time. That's right. That 5 percent changes. It's not but the same 5%. E- right. right. Even if we had a lean, mean medical machine, even if we got rid of that 30% of waste, say we were spending $2 trillion a year instead of $3.7 trillion a year, sick people would still cost more than well people. We would still have something. It would still be skewed. It might not be the 5 and 50, but it would still be skewed because if you're healthy, you don't have many medical bills. Um, the question is how do we manage chronic disease, really? It's not so much the um, – the if we had a really – if we fixed our healthcare system, which is obviously a hypothetical, we could afford the outliers. We could afford that blood clot patient in Iowa. Right now, everybody's an outlier. Everybody who's sick is expensive. We don't manage heart disease. We don't manage um, diabetes. We don't manage all these things. We have complications. We have duplication. We have harm caused by the healthcare system. We have specialists who don't talk to each other. All these things we talk about all the time. Um, That's the challenge. And and, I mean, we are addressing, you hear things like value-based care and, and accountable care and all these phrases in which represent ways of trying to deliver care more efficiently, particularly for people who live with, for years and years with chronic diseases. We've made some progress on some areas, but the technical term is still a mess. <laughs> well, along those same lines, um, Ariel Levin-Becker from Cheshire, Connecticut, wants to know, how do other countries pay for health care? Is most of the work using fee-for-service, or have some places figured out something else? 
Every country has a different system. However, most of them have some kind of a budgeting, whether it's a global budget or a fee scale. Um, a global budget would be like, you know, a big chunk of money when you have to fit the health care costs into that. Uh, into, into that annual budget. Um, some of them have a fee-for-service system, but they've regulated the prices in a way that, you know, aren't. Actually, I think I was I was looking around just last night, and it turns out most of them have uh, some kind of regulated fee-for-service system. I was a little bit surprised to find out that, that the United States is not lagging terribly behind some of these, you know, more value-based systems from other countries. But they may, but they're fee- even, uh, I'm not an expert on the pay scale of every single country in the world, and I would probably want to shoot myself if I was, but the they may be rewarding the right things. I mean, you could have a fee-for-service system that rewarded primary care instead of maybe unnecessary expensive spinal care. So um, you could have, yes, they, they there's no one answer. Some of them do have private insurers, but they're much more heavily regulated. They're nonprofit. They have, you know, some hybrid systems. So they're sort of quasi-government, quasi-labor human. I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of systems out there, but all of them spend less than we do. Yeah, well, what my thought was that also their systems work well enough that it's not urgent that they fix it the way it's sort of more urgent here that we do something well, about you, it. You know, we I, I read a lot more European health news now because we have a Brussels edition. And, and no, they're pretty worried about costs and drugs and some of the high tech, too, but not but as worried as we are. Fee-for-service seems like a uniquely American kind of messed up, well-intentioned, but doesn't work well system. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly it incentivizes um, right. those who are getting the money to, to do more and to do it in a more fragmented way. We know that much uh, about fee-for-service. But I was surprised to find out how much fee-for-service there is around the rest of our industrialized trading partners, if well, you want to. And they also just invest a lot more in the other things that make people well, in the social determinants of health, as we call them, you know, public health, transportation. They have uh, lower maternal mortality and disability rates. They have, um, you know, lower rates of diabetes and things like that that really end up costing the U.S. more. Um, so they just they kind of look at it in a more you know holistic way than just addressing some you know the illness when it pops up. All right. Well, last question, also big picture, comes from Ria Lieber, a student at Tufts University in Boston. She asked, "What's the best way to discuss how much the various proposals to expand healthcare coverage might cost?" She writes, "As we near 2020 and more Democrats put forth plans for health reform." How can we discuss costs more more productively? How can politicians avoid scaring people away with the enormous costs of reforming our health care system and instead garner diverse support for their proposals? Um, I think the short answer here is to to distinguish between whose cost, right? Mm-hmm. That's Jen, you're not. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to think about cost. One, it's the cost to the country. That's the you know big scary one trillion dollar figure that you know you would hear about like the ACA or a Medicare for all plan. Number two would be the cost per person, and that's going to vary so much depending on, you know, how healthy you are and what what your situation is now. And then the third way you have to think about it is compared to what? Is that compared to your cost getting insurance through an employer, which if you're comparing that to a Medicare for All system would change dramatically and would probably cost something different. And so in that way, it's it's hard to talk about cost. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of these candidates refuse to talk about it. You know, we have plans out there that don't have a way to pay for it because this is a really complicated question. And there's some people who sure would love a Medicare for all system, but not at the expense of a tax on, you know, whatever it could be. And then there's other people who would say Medicare for all is worth whatever tax that you would be talking about. So 
It's a really hard question, and I haven't seen any of the Democratic candidates handle it too well quite yet. I mean, there's a it's a it, it's if you're running for office and you you have a, you've endorsed this big plan that on the surface has a lot of public appeal because you're not going into the trade-offs and the specifics of what it costs. On one hand, you get pressured. Um, there's pressure on you to come up with those details. So there's, you get attacked for not saying how you'll pay for it. But the minute you say how you'll pay for it, you'll get attacked for how you're paying right. for it. So for a lot of these politicians, they're going to say you know, things like, that's a technical problem that we'll work out as a nation later. Or that they in, support the idea of it, the it's goal. Aspirational. aspirational. Right. But aspirations ex- raise expectations, and that's mm-hmm. a political problem, and we've seen that. Um, with repeal and replace. No, I also want to sort of hark back to the earlier question about 5% of the people using 50% of the care, because for a lot of people, if you're not if you're not using care, so you're not paying any any kind of cost sharing, and you may or may not be, you know, depending on how much your premiums are for your the, the, your current insurance coverage, it might be dramatically more expensive for you if you were to go to Medicare for All because you'll be expected to pay sort of a bigger share in general. Um, Right now, we put a lot of the onus uh, on patients who use the system to pay for the system too much in a lot of cases. That's why we're talking about surprise bills and drug prices. Um, But, you know, basically, we're talking about moving money around in in the trillions of dollars. And that's going to affect different people and different players in different ways. And I think Joanne's right. That's why politicians don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really complicated, as, as Jan said. I mean, just one of the biggest ways we pay for health care is by giving a big tax break to those of us who get insurance through work and to our employers. I mean, that would change. I mean, the idea of trying to explain this in a stump speech, I have a little sympathy. (laughs) Kimberly, the Republicans have also managed to sort of not talk about cost, right? (laughs) I mean, this is not just a Democratic thing. They're focused on trying to show that they do actually support protections for pre-existing conditions um, and, you know, trying to show that they specifically support those that the Affordable Care Act laid out. And I think that was a big win for Democrats is really getting Republicans to embrace one of the most popular parts of, of the health care law. And, so. and and I guess they're all happy to, to call Medicare for all socialized medicine and leave it at that. Yes, yes. They've become very – they've definitely found their footing politically with, you know, going – with attacking these plans, calling it socialized medicine, saying they want to take away your health care. You like your plan, you don't get to keep it. We're hearing a lot of that. So they're definitely um, more interested in you know, changing the subject from their attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act to, hang on, look, they want to take away your health care too. They want Medicare for all, even though, um, sure, there are presidential candidates who've backed this, but there are still a a ton of folks, some lawmakers who just don't want to back this at all. And they really um, have initially backed it or said, well, I'm okay with a lot of different ways of getting there and things like that. So it's not as though Democrats are unified behind this idea. So you're telling me Republicans now want to keep Obamacare? (laughs) (laughs) They want to to keep parts of it, I think. Or they, you know, they want to do things a little bit differently. But but again, they don't have they don't have a unified message on, you know, what the alternative is. And they're much more comfortable attacking than they are, um, you know, putting forth another position. I mean, in politics, that's that's always kind of how it works. It's a lot easier to um, attack than come up with an alternative. Right. And it's easy to attack something complicated. But that's the advantage of Medicare for all. And I mean, Obamacare is really complicated. In some ways, the appeal of Medicare for all, the political appeal and, you know, we saw I did not personally watch Bernie Sanders on Fox last night, but I read about it this morning and that, you know, he was in Fox and people were like cheering Medicare. I for saw all. the clip. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> it's it's it sounds I mean, we all we all know how complicated it actually is. 
But on the surface, it's fair and simple, right? We're all going to get the same thing and everybody's in. And that's a that's a really good political message and it makes it sounds fair. People, I mean, the whole change on pre-existing conditions is because people don't think it's fair to discriminate against people who are sick. So so even though if you ask Americans, you know, is healthcare universal right, they human basic human right, they say no, but they also sort of think some of these things have to happen. So Medicare for all, socialized medicine, big government, government controls, Medicare for none, those are really good slogans. But fairness and simplicity are also good slogans. So we're going to – it's going to be a really interesting couple of years. Well, I was watching Pete Buttigieg last night, and it was interesting when he got asked about health care. I was um, reading about Medicare, balanced (laughs) billing rules. (laughs) When he got asked about Medicare, he said he likes Medicare for all and he wants Medicare for all, but he wants to start with a public option, um, meaning people could buy into some sort of public plan on the exchange where only – what, 11 million people are. And I thought, boy, that sort of crystallizes where most of the democratic field is, which is that let's just get on everything <laughs> and, you know, see what shakes out in the end. Be, be ready. And I think it does, I mean, to, to swing back, have something to do with cost. I mean, there are sort of, you know, less uh, disruptive, shall we say, changes to the system and more disruptive changes to the system. And it's a continuum. And I just, I thought that was handy. It's like, okay, I'm going to endorse the most disruptive and the least <laughs> disruptive change at the same time. Well, you know, Democrats did that strategically. They didn't want Medicare for all to become a uh, Uh, to divide the party. So they purposefully came up with a bunch of different plans that really do fall everywhere across the spectrum from just modify the ACA a little bit to all the way to Medicare for all so that all Democrats, no matter how progressive or moderate they are, had a place to land. Or several. Yeah, or several (laughs) on expanding on the ACA. And, And in hindsight, it was very smart because they were able to not allow Republicans to just divide Democrats into Medicare for all or for or against Medicare for You know, I'm, if I could draw, which I can't, I think I would be really tempted to make a cartoon that looked like Twister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like every de- 27 Democratic candidates on four, yes. four <laughs> or five um, expansion bills all at once. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, at least we will have plenty to talk about. Um, so that is all the time we have for questions. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Joanne, why don't you start this week? I really liked, you know, there's insulin prices have been in the news. And, and in Vox, uh, Julia Bellows, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing right. I've met her and I can't remember how she pronounces it. Um, Walmart's $25 insulin can't fix the diabetes drug price crisis. It really explained well to me why insulin is not all insulin. And the older, cheaper form that uh, that Walmart is making available inexpensively is um, not going to be the best medication for a lot of people. So it sounds like a cheap and easy fix. Well, if Walmart can make it $25, why can't everybody make it $25? But it's actually not medically the best option. And it's not, it's a patch for some people. It's a better than nothing solution, but it is not a solution. It's very well explained that if you're not a scientist, you can understand all this in other words, some of these advances are actually advances, yes. not just ways for the drug companies to make money. Not, and not for everybody. Some people are fine on these older, cheaper ones. And but we also tend to prescribe the new expensive one to everybody, which is – she didn't get into that there. But, I mean, we know that. So, you know, figuring out how to use the cheaper one for the people that it's fine for and um, not for people who really need the, the sort of more finely developed recent variants of insulin, um, you know, get people what they need at a price they can afford. Don't give people more than they need and don't give them less than they need. 
So mine is AI is changing insurance in New York Times. Uh, Sarah Jong wrote it. Um, it's an opinion piece. Um, I thought it was really interesting because this is something that I've personally thought about when I think about putting Alexa in my house or, you know, wearing a Fitbit, things like that. Um, so she's saying that artificial intelligence is having an effect already on life insurance, car insurance. It is not having an effect on health insurance because of the ACA, but it very well could, particularly if, as we were talking about, the pre-existing conditions protections were to go down and uh, health insurers could underwrite. Um, She's saying that AI technology should not be allowed to be used. Um, But she raised an interesting example of, you know, a health insurance company is not allowed to to judge whether you have the the breast cancer uh, gene. Um, But what if you join a Facebook group about that gene? that tells your life insurance company that you may have it or you're, you may be worried about it or you may be predisposed to having it. Um, so it was interesting, kind of got the wheels in my brain turning. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I wear a Fitbit, but I know that it's not completely accurate. And it's like, <laughs> I don't really want people, other people judging my exercise by my not totally accurate Fitbit. And given Just, what we all, because we're health journalists, because of what we're always Googling, AI would think we have every oh, disease yes. on earth, including <laughs> some that are anatomically impossible for us as women. Right? Good point. <laughs> Kimberly, you have two stories this week. Yes, I do. I do. I wanted to uh, focus on um, some of the great work that's been done about, you know, the the needs that exist in our um, incarcerated population in the U.S. So um, one of them was an investigation by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it's by Danny Robbins. And it's called A First-of-Its-Kind Investigation by the AJC Shows How At Least a Dozen Inmates Have Died and Died Horribly Because They Didn't Get the Medication or Help They Needed. Um, a horrific story. Um, about insulin. Again, about insulin insulin, um, but that unfortunately gets to, you know, some of the um, needs that are not being addressed, some very serious medical needs. And then um, another one in South Carolina, uh, South Carolina inmates' baby died in toilet lawsuits allege rampant medical neglect in prisons. Um, And this is by the local uh, Greenville, uh, South Carolina publication called The State, and uh, Emily Bohatch wrote it. And so, um, as as you know, we just passed a criminal justice reform bill, and that did deal um, with um, some issues that pregnant women face while they're incarcerated and some of the needs that they face. And um, it's it's possible that, you know, stories like this will get more attention as Congress looks to, you know, criminal justice reform 2.0 and um, how to essentially put health care policy into um, some of the uh, reforms that they're looking at. Yep. Candidates, people often say that, you know, well, prisons get better health care than, you know, a lot of other people. And it's like, nope. yeah, not necessarily the case. I've actually visited the inside of a prison in Virginia. I have gone to the locked um, prison unit at a state hospital. I wouldn't want to be there. Uh, well, I also have a very sobering story this week by my KHN colleagues Melissa Bailey and Janelle Alicia called Lethal Plans When Seniors Turn to Suicide in Long-Term Care. And it's about how it's likely that at least one suicide per day comes from an older adult in long-term care. Uh, the story raises questions about not just the quality of care in those settings, but whether mental health issues are being carefully enough monitored among people in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. It is quite the piece. Um, So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Jen Hab. At Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.